it's great to see everyone. To those of you joining us online, I'd like to add my welcome to Four Mile Church. I imagine there's at least a couple people out there online or here who've been on vacation for the last couple of weeks, and you're like, who's this guy? Um, my name is David, so I am the new guy. I'll be wearing that badge for a while, I suppose. It's actually not a bad thing. I've noticed this week, because when you screw up, um, people are like, well, that's just the new guy. He doesn't know any better. So that's cool. But my goal each day, or each week really now probably, is to make sure that um, people just shake their head less at me um, throughout each week. So anyway, this is a church that's been at it for over two centuries. And so when people ask you about your church, here's what you tell them. First, we're a church with a vision to reach the tri-state region and beyond, making fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And we do that by taking our next steps towards Christ together every single day of the week. The second thing you tell them is that here at Four Mile, everyone is involved in this mission. So God has called each of you uniquely here for this purpose, even though we all have shortcomings in our lives. And that's why here at Four Mile, it's okay to not be okay. All of us are in process at some level or another, no perfect people. We just don't wanna stay in that not okay place, which is why we have the third thing. We love you enough to tell you the truth and the person, words, and works of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So today, we're gonna to launch our series, The Sermon on the Mount, and it's chock full of truth and fundamentals. And so as we've been talking fundamentals, Christy's had our ball all week, and so, um, great toss. All right, so we got it back up here. That was a great toss, did you practice that? Yeah, okay, good, yeah. So um, as we think about the Sermon on the Mount and the importance of understanding those fundamentals, we're reminded that the game of football is a very strategic game. There's a lot that goes into it, right? But you really can't even begin to understand it until you understand what this ball is all about, right? How it flies, the basics of it. And that's what we're doing here over the next really couple months, really through the years, focusing on those particular fundamentals that we have. Now today is gonna be a little bit unconventional for two reasons. First. Cammie and I are both gonna give the message today. But don't worry, I see it look of panic on your face. It doesn't mean it's twice as long of a sermon. Same, same distance, right? Um, and then the second thing is we're gonna focus on the cultural and the historical context so that we really have a good understanding of the Sermon on the Mount. So let's go before the Lord in prayer and ask his help. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. And so today we come before you asking for your help, that your spirit would convict us of your kingdom. As we read scripture, as we learn about the Sermon on the Mount, we just pray that you would prepare us for your kingdom. So Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. For Jesus' sake, amen. So, you're probably wondering, why would we spend an entire sermon on the context of something? Well, context is absolutely vital to grasp the cosmic and eternal implications of the sermon that Jesus gave that day. 
Now, Cammy gave a great illustration of context a few months back. I don't know if you remember it, but if you get this text that says to you, I'm coming to get you, it can be interpreted a lot of different ways. If you happen to be taking a red eye back from LA and you're landing in Pittsburgh and you didn't sleep all night and your best friend is supposed to pick you up at the airport and you get this text that says, I'm coming to get you, that's a pretty welcome text, isn't it? But if you happen to be dating somebody new and you get that text from their ex, not such a welcome text, is it? I was reminded of this um, earlier this week. Um, I was linking up with somebody down in Beaver about 10.45 in the morning. And all of a sudden, this industrial era siren just goes off in the middle of Beaver. And I never heard it before. And I'm like, oh, no. Like, do we need to do something? He's like, no, nah, man, that's just an exercise. So you can see how the context really matters, right? If that was the real thing, we needed to do something quick. But if it was obviously just an exercise, well, then, you know, we just move on with our day. So as John Stott says, the Sermon on the Mount is probably the best-known part of Jesus' teaching, though arguably it is the least understood and certainly it is the least obeyed. And that's because it's so often taken out of context. So to ensure that we appreciate this setting, I'm going to briefly walk you through a 30,000-foot view of Old Testament history. It's going to take me seven minutes. So trust me, it's not like it's going to take forever. And then Cami is going to focus on the immediate context of the Sermon on the Mount in first century Palestine. And then, this is the most important part of this message, we're actually going to read together Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's three chapters. It's so important that we read Scripture. And we've been praying that as we read this today, that the Holy Spirit will walk you through those exact words of Jesus. So if you have your Bible and you want to start moving to that, you can. It's chapters 5, 6, and 7 in Matthew. You also can hit that QR code that Garrett was talking about for the website. It'll take you there. There's a blue banner. If you hit that, you will pull up the actual script that Cammie and I are going to use um, right off of uh, the website. So now, as we work our way through the Old Testament, we're going to see several themes emerge. The first one is that God calls out a people to himself. He sets them apart from the world, and they're adopted children, heirs of his kingdom, and as such, they're different from the world in their outlook and in their behavior. But from creation, and this is the second piece, we see that God's people have continually rebelled against being the chosen nature. And the third thing we're going to see is that everything in the Old Testament points to the gospel message of Jesus. And you're going to see those three themes play out. So let's start from the very, very beginning. So God creates the heavens and the earth and all that's in it. And he sets Adam and Eve apart by giving them dominion over much of his creation. But then the devil tempts man, man rebels and sins against God, that's what we call the fall, and man is tossed out of the garden. By around 3000 BC, sin is so rampant that God decides to wipe the earth with a flood and set his people apart again. 
He saves Noah, his family, and two of each creature. And then God makes the first of five major covenants. So God makes covenants with man, but there's five major ones. We're going to walk through all five today. Where he says, I'm never going to destroy the earth again with a flood. Around 2200 BC, man is populating the earth, and they gather in Babel to build a tower to the heavens. But it's a monument to themselves, crowning their own achievements and self-sufficiency instead of God's glory. And so God says, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. So in response to this rebellion, the Lord dispersed them and gave them different languages. Not long after that, God makes his second covenant with man, but this time with Abraham. God gives Abraham a son, Isaac, it's a very old age, and promises to make his descendants a great nation. Again, God sets them apart by promising them land and that he will be their God and they will be his people. Isaac then has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is the younger of the brother, and he has 12 sons, and they become the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those sons, named Joseph, is sold into Egyptian slavery by his brothers, but by God's providence, Joseph finds his way from being a slave to Pharaoh's chief assistant, where he eventually saves the nation Israel from famine. The nation Israel is now in Egypt, and they become enslaved by the Egyptians. About 1500 BC, God calls Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. After a series of plagues, a mad dash through the Red Sea, and 40 years in the desert, God sets them apart again. But they're stiff-necked, and they grumble, just like us even though God stays with them and he provides for them. Then God makes his third major covenant with Moses this time, and he gives them the law that once again sets them apart. Moses led Israel to the promised land, but God forbids him from entering in because Moses too was disobedient. You remember he was told to speak to the rock and he smacked it instead. So Joshua is chosen to lead Israel into the promised land, conquering all those in Canaan, and again, God sets them apart. For about 400 years, God rules the nation Israel with a series of judges in the likes of Gideon and Deborah and Samson. But Israel rebels again by begging God for a king. God doesn't want to give them a king because he's their king but they wanna be like other nations. They don't want to be set apart. So you can see the generational nature of this sin. Despite God's many provisions, Israel continues to grumble until God finally gives them their first king in King Saul. And God guides Saul through the prophet Samuel, but Saul rebels too, and God eventually removes him. God makes David the next king, a man after his own heart. And again, God guides him through the prophet Nathan. David is remarkably prosperous. He conquers many, but like all of mankind, 
He has his shortcomings too. He commits adultery, and his family pays a huge price for it. David repents, and he wants to make a physical temple for God. But God denies David's request, and instead, God makes his fourth major covenant with man, this time with David, that one of David's descendants would be the Messiah. God does, however, allow his son, Solomon, to build a temple. And Solomon is wise, and Israel prospers. But he, too, rebels. After Solomon dies, God's people are then divided. There's 12 tribes. Judah is kind of in the south, and the rest of Israel in the north. And there are a series of about 40 kings between Israel and Judah. There are a few decent ones, like Josiah and Hezekiah, but most of them are a hot mess. God continues to guide Israel and Judah, and there are many kings through prophets, like Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah. But the kings mostly don't listen to them either. The kings are sinful, and they pursue their own interests. Around 700 B.C., God allows the Assyrians to conquer Israel in the north. That's a big thing. And then a little bit later, the Babylonians take out Judah from the south, and then they swing north and take out the Assyrians as well. That's one of those things where Israel never expected it. Many prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel lived through it and continued to exhort Israel to repent in the midst of their exile. These prophets, they spoke of a coming Messiah and a new covenant, the fifth covenant, the one we live under, that was unlike the others. It would be written on their hearts. Their sins would be forgiven, and God would remember those sins no more. But this was a time of profound suffering and loss for God's people because of their perpetual rebellion against God. Around 500 B.C., King Cyrus of Persia conquers Babylon, and he allows the remnant, whatever's left of Israel and Judah, to return to Jerusalem. So Israel has been conquered, exiled from the promised land, suffered greatly, and only a remnant remained to rebuild. But if that weren't bad enough, God went silent for 400 years. The prophets were completely quiet, and the remnant of Israel was subject to the rule of the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. So Israel was the nation that God had chosen, that God had captivity, cared for, and prospered. But it was also a nation that constantly, as you have heard, rebelled against him by being disobedient to his law and rejecting his love. God had made many promises or covenants with Israel, and he was always faithful to his commitment to them, to his word to them, even though Israel was not faithful to him. And so after warning them and urging them to repent again and again, God finally gave them over to their enemies, and Israel suffered mightily in exile. Even when the remnant was allowed to return to Jerusalem, they were still oppressed by the Greeks and the Romans. 
And depending on which scholar you read, there are as many as 351 Old Testament prophecies of a coming Messiah. And so the remnant that survived held out hope for this Messiah. They held out hope for the one who would deliver them from their oppression. They were waiting for a king who would conquer their enemies and restore them as a great nation. But once again, that same stiff-necked, stubborn resistance to God's authority persisted in the remnant. They wanted things on their terms instead of God's, but that is just not how it works. That has never been, nor will it ever be, God's way. This new covenant was different from all the others. The new covenant was going to deal with sin that separated God from his people once and for all. God was not only going to atone for their sins and forgive them completely, but he was going to live in his people, just like Jeremiah 31 says. God's new covenant was going to involve a cross, a crucifixion, a resurrection, and an indwelling Holy Spirit. So you can only imagine how this new message must have rocked their world. And the king was finally here. His name was Jesus. But the thing is, it wasn't the kingdom, and he wasn't the king that anyone expected. Jesus' message turned their world upside down. And it's going to flip ours on its head as well. You see, the things that the world prizes, God despises. And those things that God prizes, the world despises. I mean, think about our daily lives, work, school, social media, our obsession with status. Jesus is going to take all of it to task, to show his disciples and us how the kingdom of God just isn't interested in any of it. So much of what we spend our lives accumulating simply doesn't matter in the kingdom of God. We're completely missing the ball. God wants a people set apart from the world, different in every way. And that is exactly what Jesus came to do, set us apart. So this Sermon on the Mount is one of Jesus' first recorded sermons. You can find it in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's about 98 verses, and it's probably going to take us about 12 or so minutes to read. You can also find portions of it in Luke So in his mid-twenties, Jesus has recently been baptized at Bethany in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, and he spent 40 days in the desert fasting and being tempted by the devil. Then he launches his public ministry, going throughout Galilee and Syria, healing, preaching, and pulling together his team of 12 disciples. According to tradition, The Sermon on the Mount takes place about 80 miles north of Jerusalem on a hill known as Carnitine, near a city called Capernaum, along the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. We're told that when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You were the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You were the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser where you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. 
And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fa fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for he, he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, but being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Judge not that you not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye who do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, 
Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophet. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow, the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. 
My goodness, that is an incredible message. Amen? It isn't lost on us that we're going to spend the next few months expounding on a sermon that it took Jesus just a few minutes to say. Uh, Let us be emphatically clear, it is not that we are going to improve on it. Jesus was a masterful teacher. But God has indeed given the gift of teaching and preaching to the church in order that we might be able to unpack and better understand and apply his word right here and now. Because between translations and cultural differences, as well as the fact that in this particular instance, there's a 2,000-year gap in time, much of Scripture's impact and intent is simply lost on us. And that's why we want to be so careful and intentional to unpack this sermon over the coming months. But isn't it so good and such an encouragement to just sit and listen to Jesus' words? It's so good. It's so rich and convicting and powerful. We really want to encourage you over the next coming months to read these chapters often. It will be a great way to prepare our hearts and minds to learn and grow each week as we gather here together. What's incredible is that even though it was 2,000 years ago, we're going to see that Jesus addresses the issues that are just as relevant today as they were back then. The general general theme of chapter 5 is Christian character and how we respond as children of God and heirs of the kingdom. In other words, the character or the intention of what lies behind our actions is just as important as the actions themselves. Chapter 6 shifts to how Christians live life in the presence of God, submitting to and being fully dependent upon him. And chapter 7 is all about living under the judgment of God and with a healthy fear of the Lord. You'll recall a few weeks ago from David's first sermon that a healthy fear of the Lord rests on the truth about who God is and who we are. Fearing God is what sets his people apart from the rest of the world. We so hope that you will plan on joining us next week as we launch into the Beatitudes, which are the opening lines of this epic sermon. Would you pray with me? Father God, we ask that you would prepare us to receive your word through this series. Pierce our hearts, Lord, so that we desire to operate on your terms and not our own. God, I ask that you would prepare us throughout this week as we engage in prayer, as we study the Sermon on the Mount in preparation for this upcoming series, and as we respond to the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.